we put into place a rotation of topics that we try to go through every year, and that they are uh, theology, and Ryman Grosman teaching the Westminster Larger Catechism, and then after that we've done church history, and then we have done uh, biblical studies, and then practical Christian living, a practical topic, an applied topic this year, the Lord willing, stewardship. And that'll be just a short course of five weeks or so. And this one is the biblical studies. A couple of years ago, and again, COVID stretches has stretched everything out, unfortunately. A couple of years ago, we did the Pentateuch, so the first five books of Moses. And that was six or seven weeks. We've done an introduction to each book. And we're going to do a little bit of the same here with the historical books. And I'll get into what that means in a moment, but hopefully uh, hopefully this will be of some use to you. The purpose of this class is simply to get to know your Bible better. Uh, preaching, expository preaching, is a useful way to get to know your Bible. Uh, as you can imagine, think of the sermon series that I'm going through this morning, which are the works of the flesh and then soon the fruit of the Spirit, and they're very topical, and we're taking a long time to get through Galatians 5 and especially study the work of sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes when you preach and study at that rate, you can lose sight of the big picture. And this class is really to help you read your Bible with an eye on the sweep of biblical history uh, to give you large portions of Scripture quickly Uh, summaries of books, and then a little bit about even bigger, how the whole Bible itself is put together, a little bit about chronology and timeline, and hopefully that will be of some help to you. So, the next weeks we will study the historical books. I want to read and then pray. Um, Read from Psalm 78, and uh, remind you that Christians have always been those who are interested in history. We just had a church history class. Um, Much of the Bible is history, and we'll see in a moment that really Christianity at its heart is history. Not just principles or ideas, but history. And um, we love history because we see two things. The hand of God in providence. We see His handiwork His governing and sustaining all things. And then supremely in that we see the history of salvation and the way of salvation. And um, the history and way of salvation. Let me read from Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known. And our fathers have told us We will not hide them from our children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, 
whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we think of Your Word that You have appointed, a testimony and a law in Israel, that You gave Your people a book, and that that book is filled with the history of Your mighty deeds, the revelation of Your holy precepts, and crowning its revelation, the history and principles of salvation revealed in Jesus Christ. We pray today and for the coming weeks that we would learn to read and mark your holy word and to better understand the grand sweep of your redeeming works and trace the lines of your holy providence and to become those who are interested in the history of your mighty works and We pray then for your Spirit's help for in any way to truly understand your word. We need your divine illumination. And we pray for that grace and help in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to talk about a a few things here. We've got a handout. Oh, do you have a handout? That's the first question. Who who does not have a handout? There's handouts here. Um, There's some at the front. I think there's some at the back. Uh, Grab one of those and... It will help you, particularly if you look at the back, don't look at the back too long. It's very fine print of a timeline, which we'll get to later. But your handout should have a front and a back um, to it. Completely off topic. There's more Table Talk magazines at the back on the way out, if you like Table Talk. Um, I meant to say that earlier, but we have a few mailed to us every month. Grab one at the back if you'd like one. Okay, back to the class. The first thing, um, uh, there's a little book. I believe the title of the, uh, the author of the book is Mortimer Adler, I believe it is. And the title of his book is called How to Read a Book. I don't know if you've ever seen this book, but a book on how to read a book. Uh, when you read the title, your mind might get stuck in an endless loop. What do I do with this book? Because I need to read the book before I read the book. And... Uh, However, it's a, it's a good book in that it helps you think about what it is to truly read. Uh, I read the book years ago, but there's a few things that I remember from it, and they are uh, some things that I regularly do. Yesterday in Men's Fellowship, if you were there, um, we read the last chapter of Ted Donnelly's book, Heaven and Hell, which, by the way, I can commend to you highly as, yeah, the best book I have ever read on the topic of heaven and hell. And in the last chapter, at the beginning of that chapter, well, a few paragraphs in, he does something that authors so often do. There was an introduction. And then following that introduction, a few uh, a few paragraphs in, he told us what he was going to do in that chapter. And he gave three points. Now, that was not marked out. But those uh, three points then formed the outline for that whole chapter, and um, and they were it was the environment of the new heavens and the new earth, and then um, the people or the communion of the new heavens and the new earth, people of God with their God, and then finally the service or the work of the new heavens and the new earth, primarily worship. And if you are reading carefully that chapter, you 
you, if you, if you learn to read a book, that sentence should have jumped out at you as a summary of what was to come and begin to hang together the whole chapter. Adler in his book says, look for structure in books. As a matter of fact, he, he says, uh, read the introduction and, and, and read the closing, end of the closing chapter. Read some of the uh, topic sentence at the beginning of the chapters. Try to get how the whole thing hangs together in your mind instead of immediately just running into the book and sequentially reading. Because there's an argument, there's an idea, there's a flow, there's a structure to the thing. And the structure to the thing helps you understand, number one, and remember, number two. I don't know if uh, you're anything like me, but um, I am not very good at memorizing bare facts. Let's say a string of numbers. That's actually a hard, very hard thing to do. Pi. Does anyone know people memorize pi to so many decimal places because it's a non-repeating uh, number? And this is a thing. Well, there's no way that you just—it's just raw memory. There's no logic to it. It's a feat of memory. It's actually a remarkable feat of memory. But um, my memory does much better when things hang together, and I have them in relation to other things. Sometimes Christians read the Bible like people memorize pi, a, a, a loose collection of verses. That they get a precept from here, an idea there, and a thing to meditate on here, and you know Joshua be strong and courageous, and um, uh, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, and I'm just picking random thoughts. Uh, David and Goliath is one story we know. But if you were to ask somebody, what is who came first, and how does the Lord's word to Joshua be strong and courageous? Uh, relate to what Nehemiah was talking about with the king in exile. How does this fit together? Matter of fact, sometimes there are people who, if I were to ask them, what order would I put Noah, Abraham, Joshua, David, and Nehemiah, uh, might not be able to do so. And one of the reasons is that the arrangement of the books in the Bible has to be thought through to understand how the thing fits together. How are these books organized? And they're not chronological. Now, they're roughly chronological, but let me tell you what I mean by roughly. Genesis 1.1 is the first uh, moment of history, and Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. He's the last prophet. But Isaiah lives during the time, for example, of Hezekiah. And we read the life of Hezekiah in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles and in Isaiah. And so what that means is that when you're reading your Bible, to give you some idea of its history, you have a narrative in, in 2 Kings, a narrative in 2 Chronicles, and actually in Isaiah, interesting, it's also narrative. Um, there's a narrative in Isaiah and those three narratives, in other words, you have to understand that those books run parallel to each other. And Isaiah is a prophet across various, uh, various kings in the history of Israel. And if you were to pick up a Bible and just read through, um, 
that might be confusing to you. So what I want to do first is talk a little bit about the structure of the Bible and the division of the Bible into sections. Why we're talking about the historical books. The Old Testament has a basic structure. Uh, I think you have a handout there. Let's see. I've got just your basic structure for you. The Old Testament, um, the Old Testament can be divided into the law, and we have the historical books, the wisdom books, and the prophets. And the law covers, uh, which books are the law? The Torah, the Pentateuch. You know what Pentateuch means? Five scroll cases. Um, that's what that complicated word means. It means five scroll cases. First five books, the books of Moses. Moses is the primary author. It appears that Joshua had a hand in the same. For example, the death and burial of Moses is narrated, which would be difficult uh, for Moses to write, as you could imagine. Um, the, uh, you have uh, five books of Moses. These are called the Law, or the Torah in Hebrew. And these are the foundational books of the Scriptures. And in them you have some of the, well, a great amount of the history of the world, actually. Um, cover from creation of the world, the early history of humanity, Genesis 1 to 11 are these chapters, and we're going to see later in the timeline how much Genesis of, of human history Genesis 1 to 11 covers. Um, the call of Abraham, we have the patriarchs Isaac and Jacob, we have the movement of the people of God, Israel, the family of Israel before it's a nation, to Egypt. Then we have uh, Israel becoming a nation and growing and multiplying in the, the 400-some-year sojourn in Egypt. Then we have the exodus under Moses. And if I could just put a little uh, plug here for, uh, or a little hook in your mind. Moses is the great prophet of the Old Testament. He's not the great prophet. There's going to be a greater prophet. But the ministry of Moses as the great Old Covenant mediator, um, is important to remember. He's this great singular figure that rises in the Old Covenant, especially when it comes to divine revelation as a prophet of God. Uh, he, again, is the... Okay, then we have the Exodus, and then we have the wilderness wanderings of Israel. The uh, Deuteronomy ends with what? Moses... Not able to enter the promised land. Okay? We'll get to the narrative of that, those books a little later. He's the primary author of the Torah, and these books relate both precepts, promises, and many historical events. There's a mix of teaching and history in these books. Then we have, we call the historical books, Joshua and Esther. Um, Joshua through Esther, rather, and we're going to get more into that in a moment. Then we have what we call the wisdom books, and the wisdom books, Job through, you know, Song of Solomon, it says Ecclesiastes on your handout, it should be Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. Um, those books are, inter uh, if you could put them on the on a timeline, I should have put all these books on the timeline, but we'll get to that the timeline later. These books are scattered through the period. It appears from the patriarchs, actually, yeah, actually from the patriarchs, all the way to um, Solomon and even beyond. Some of the Psalms 
are post-exilic, like Psalm 137. So if you were to take the wisdom literature, this is devotional, meditative um, literature that both Psalms praise to God, Proverbs, the way of the, the wise man, the righteous man. Uh, Job, it seems to be roughly in the period of the patriarchs. If you were to take these books, you would place them over the history of the Old Testament all the way almost from the time of the patriarchs to the post-exilic period. So this wisdom literature is, as it were, laid over the history of Israel. Um, one of the Psalms, for example, Psalm 90, is written by Moses, another by Solomon, sons of Asaph, and all the way into the post-exilic period. Then we have another section, which are the prophets. And the prophets, we have the same thing. Now, remember I talked about Moses. I just had to keep a little hook in your mind. Moses is the, the singular prophet of the Old Testament. All of the prophets, there is new divine revelation in the prophets. There's a special Old Testament office. But if you read them carefully, what they are doing largely is explaining Moses. There's a greater fullness of the promises that are rooted in the Pentateuch. So if I were to give you now layers, you've got this history here. And you've got wisdom literature, the way of the Christian life. And then you have the prophets, which kind of offset a little bit because they're after Moses. And they are further explanation of the revelation of God to Israel through Moses. They are, if you were, how many of you have heard of Sermon Audio, the website? If I were to give you an analogy, the prophets are kind of like uh, the Sermon Audio collection of the Old Testament. It's the preaching that God sent to His people across the ages. So again, we've got history, we've got this wisdom literature, and then we have the prophets, and the prophets is the preaching, including predictive prophecy, new revelation in the Old Covenant. That is a third category. So again, you're thinking about your Bible. Now remember how this is in order. These, these layers... As it were, you've got historical books from Genesis, if we were to think of that through, through Esther. There's a great span of history. It is prophetic as well. But then you have wisdom literature, and then you have prophets. You are to think of those three layers as running, in a sense, concurrently across the Old Testament. You are not to read your Old Testament simply in order, not thinking about the relationship of these three main categories. The law, historical books, wisdom books, prophets. Um, and that brings you from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Malachi chapter 4. That brings you across the whole sweep of the Old Testament and hopefully helps you understand a little bit about how your Bible is put together. Any questions there? Just this is basic... Um, uh, chronology and organization into sections. Mr. Ellis. Well, it's usually placed in the prophets. It's part of Jeremiah's prophecy. But it is, it, it is formally in the prophets. It has a character much like the Psalms um, and wisdom literature. So uh, there's another one, Daniel, which is half history and half prophecy. And you can't neatly categorize it 
Isaiah, which is mainly a prophet, but uh, chapters 37 to 39 is history. As a matter of fact, it's direct parallel to Second Kings, as I said, Hezekiah's life. So these categories are not entirely hard and fast, but they are general categories. As a matter of fact, the things that we just brought up, you can't divide the wisdom literature from the prophets from the history. It is an intermingled. It is, these are broad categories. Daniel, perhaps, and Lamentations are good examples of that. Um, how these are intermingled and interconnected whole, one scripture. Now, I'm going to talk about the New Testament just for a moment to give you a sense of the same similar sort of structure. Uh, you have uh, the Gospels, which are the history of Jesus Christ. And then you have the epistles, which are the explanation, the further explanation and unfolding through the special office of apostle of the one greater than Moses. And then at the end, you have the book of Revelation, which is a special book, um, similar in character, closest to Daniel and Ezekiel in the Old Testament, uh, the apocalyptic book, which gives you this great symbolic picture of history in the reign of Christ. It's a summary book, but you have the Gospels and Acts uh, together, the historical books, the life of Jesus, then his work after his resurrection by the Spirit and building the church. So you take those five books and then the epistles, in a sense, function like the prophets. You have the prophets and the apostles. They explain the history in greater detail. And then you finish with um, the book of Revelation. Hopefully, when you read your Bible now, you see that there's this relationship between History, actually James is wisdom literature in a sense. James is a parallel to wisdom literature in the Old Testament. But you have these categories of history, wisdom, and prophets and apostles. And if you can keep those in your mind, you can read your Bible with greater understanding. We'll get to more later with dates. But in general, as I said earlier, you read far better when you can discern the structure of a book, I can tell you that one of the difficulties I had in reading the Bible in my earliest years, my earlier years, was not knowing its structure or chronology. So, um, I would read Isaiah, for example, for example, ahistorically, divorced from, I would kind of read it devotionally for inspirational ideas. Not that badly, but you get the sense. Uh, Psalm 90, if you put Psalm 90 beside the life of Moses, and he's meditating on the eternity of God and the brevity of life, how many people did Moses see die in the plagues in the wilderness, in Egypt under slavery, the babies in the Nile uh, River, um, the babies killed by the Egyptians, the... uh, the Pharaoh and his host drowned in the Red Sea, the plague of the firstborn. I mean, this is a meditation of life and death and time and eternity and salvation only through the Lord, written by a man who saw these things. It's not divorced from history. Um, again, hopefully this will help you read your Bible better. Um, how, how does this book hold together? How is it organized? Is critical to a mature reading of the Scriptures. Again, I'll pause here for questions about the division of the Bible into sections. Anybody uh, have any more questions on that or comments? Again, how to read a book and how to read the Bible. 
Now we're going to move to focus on the Bible as history. We're looking at the historical books. So we begin with Joshua, and I'm going to give a quick overview. The next weeks we'll look at individual books. The end of Deuteronomy is, as I said earlier, um, similar to the end of Exodus. And why might I say that? Anyone remember the end of Exodus? What's the problems? What's the problem of Deuteronomy, end of Deuteronomy, end of Exodus? We have almost the same problem. So at the end of Exodus, what is happening? The tabernacle has been built. The dwelling place of God is with men in a limited fashion in the Old Covenant. And when the glory of God fills the tabernacle, we read a little phrase at the end of Exodus, but Moses could not enter in. Right? And then, at the end of Deuteronomy, because of Moses' sin, we have a problem repeated and perhaps even more urgent. Uh, but the same problem, in a sense, is that Moses, on account of his sins in leading the people of Israel in the wilderness, was not allowed to enter the promised land. And the reason he dies and the Lord buries him on Mount Nebo is it marks the profound insufficiency of the old covenant mediator. He couldn't carry them into the promised land. Joshua becomes the new standard bearer and we are right at that division point when we start what we call the historic books. And Joshua, whose name means Jehovah saves, is a new and different picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, he is indeed a type of Christ or a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, his name, if you were to translate the name Joshua into um, Greek, what, anyone know what name he would get? Jesus. Yeah, he's the Old Covenant. Joshua is a picture of Christ. And this already tells you that Moses is the insufficient mediator. Joshua will be too. But he is a picture of what Christ would do, and that is to bring his people to the promised land. Um, we have the book of Joshua. It covers the conquest of the land of Israel, the victory over and dispossession of the Canaanites. They are conquered, and they are to be driven from the land. And the book of Joshua recounts those battles, for example, Jericho and, um, and Ai and others, and the, the campaign and then the settling or division of the land, which is what? The, um, it is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, to Abraham. To your descendants, I will give this land. And we have now, at the end of Joshua, we have something of the picture of salvation in quite full form. What I mean by that is that Israel, through the Exodus, has been released from Pharaoh, their old slave master, pointed to Satan by Moses, the old covenant mediator. They've been brought through the wilderness of this world as we live in the wilderness of this life as pilgrims. And they have landed through the Joshua's uh, conquering campaigns. They have landed and settled in the promised land a land flowing with milk and honey, and they have been given uh, houses they did not build, fields and vineyards they did not plant, and the abundance of Canaan. There's a, there's a fulfillment of promise. That's Joshua. This, however, um, the end of Joshua already intimates problems. Joshua's last words in Joshua 24 are that um, 
he's having to challenge Israel not to go back to idols. This is going to be the great snare of Israel. And we have a sense of foreboding at the end of the book. Already, while Joshua still lives, and the land has just been divided, the tribes had helped, have gone back to the other side of the Jordan for their possession. Everybody is settling down. And Joshua is already having to warn them. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Judges, a descent into um, cycles of idolatry and rebellion and then recovery through judges. And if we were, uh, then we, somewhere in the period of the judges, we have the narrative of Ruth. And then we have uh, that transition from the period of Judges. Ruth is almost like a bridge between Judges and First um, and Second Samuel in the Davidic kingdom. So we have uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, this bridge. And we have First and Second Samuel. We, if you're listening to sermons on Sunday evening, I don't have to say too much about First and Second Samuel, but you have Samuel, Saul, and David. Then later you have divided kingdom. In 1 Kings, after the death of David, I mean, after the death of Solomon, rather, um, David, Solomon, and then you have Rehoboam in the southern kingdom, which is Judah. You have Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. And that is, uh, leads us to, for jumping very quickly ahead, the conquest of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. And that is, leads to a captivity, a wiping out of the ten tribes and the scattering across the lands, and they, not all of them are taken away. As a matter of fact, in Hezekiah's day, there's still a little remnant, and he gathers them for the Passover. But in the main, the northern kingdom is going to be broken in 722, and then the southern kingdom is going to be taken away, so that would be the line of David, 586. And if you look at this, um, some of this history is also, uh, okay, we have the Babylonian conquest, and then in the exile, and then we have the return from exile, which brings us to the end of the historical books. That's Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and Esther. That is the period of return from exile, what happens in exile and return from exile. So if I were to put it in sections, conquest of the land uh, to exile and return. That's on the other end. Conquest, exile, and return on the other, hand, on the other end. And there's some movement from the conquest and settlement then we have the establishment of a government. Judges is the first phase. The kings are the second phase of that. The better. But in both of those you have rise and fall, rise and fall. And that's from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Anyone know what First and Second Chronicles function is in all of this? First and Second Chronicles. They're largely, in a real sense, they look like a repeat of 1 Samuel to 2 Kings. If you read them, they begin with genealogies, but then they begin with David, and they go all the way uh, to the exile. And if you were to think of 1 and 2 Chronicles, it would be like a prophetic commentary on the history. Uh, it's almost like a, a series, a condensed divine commentary on the nation of Israel. It's an overlay. It's kind of halfway between the prophets and the history. Um, so you have judges, establishment of a government, sorry, conquest and settlement, establishment of a government, exile, and then return. 
in all of this, by the time you get to the end of the history, what do you have left of Israel? The period of Judges has been a train wreck. The period of Kings has descended into brokenness, sin, and rebellion. The exile has been a public humiliation. And even when there's a return, anyone remember when the new temple is built in Ezra? What happens when the foundation is laid? The people... Yeah. At the end of the Old Testament, the end of the history, there's just going to be a shadow. A little kingdom under the rule of the kingdoms of this world. A little temple. No king. Um, Zerubbabel is the closest thing you're going to get to a king. It's going to be a governor under the kings of this world. And there's going to be a little shadow and a remnant. And that little shadow and a remnant, it's that period right there where the prophets, really the decline of the kingdom and the shadow and the remnant, where the promises of the new covenant shine brightest in, in books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and where the Lord begins to reveal in brighter terms, something better is coming. Uh, so conquest, kings, exile, return. You can put that in your mind. That's the big picture of the historical books. And the exile and return is really an impetus for the bright shining of the new covenant promises that there, is, there needs to be a better king, a better Messiah, the Spirit of God. And especially the Old Testament ends, its history ends with this Zerubbabel, a placeholder for the Davidic king. No king, no kingdom, no glory, and very little power. The, the heady days of Solomon are, are long gone and the longing for a Messiah. If you get to the New Testament, it is going to be this narrative arc that has people like Simeon and Anna waiting in the temple for the consolation of Israel. It's going to be this, this, this deep conviction that this is not all there is. There's something better coming that will drive them to recognize Jesus Christ, the baby. Christ as He comes to the temple. Okay, I think um, I've already talked about the prophets being an overlay. A little bit more on the nature of the historical books. Um, I have too much material here and not enough time, I see. Um, let's see, how much time do we have? Maybe 13 minutes? Does that look like right? We stop at 20 after 10? Hmm? Go fast. I'm going to go fast. So, Historical nature of the historical books. A couple things. This sounds obvious. But uh, the Bible narrates real history. And we know this to be true how? It's history. It's more accurate than your newspaper. Well, that's not very hard these days, I guess. But um, there is no disinformation in the Scriptures. As a matter of fact... I often think these days with all the competing truth claims just clouding the internet and people trying to, to destroy one person's ideas and hide this narrative and lift up their own and their own interests, you might think, how could I know what is true? And you know what the answer is? The, the Bible on paper. Um, anyone see that Roald Dahl's books? The, what is it? Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. By the way, his, he was a strange man. And I'm sorry if you like his books, but they are strange books. 
Um, people hand them to their kids. When I was a kid, someone handed me one. I was like, whoa, what was wrong with this, man? Um, and I was just a young child. Um, but did you see that they, they've just re, uh, they've, uh, They've re-released them in electronic form, removing all the quote-unquote offensive parts and modernized them for a new woke generation. And I thought about the capacity of digital communication to allow for the subtle changing of original manuscripts and you would never know. It's one of the reasons why scrolls and the codex, that's this book here, this technology here, written page, the, the printed page is so valuable. This book stays the same. Um, anyway, history, back to history. I'm getting off topic. Okay, the Bible is true. It's self-authenticating. The Holy Spirit is the fundamental author. The fundamental truth of God's word is not dependent on human discovery of corroborating sources. It stands on its own as the Word of God in history. However, and this isn't a however that changes this in any way, maybe therefore would be a better word than however. Therefore, we should expect that we find in our study of history a correspondence between what the Scriptures say. And let me just say a few things about the Bible and archaeology and history um, archaeology is, a never, is an always changing, swirling field of people guessing uh, about timelines and always reinterpreting and new generations of scholars coming up and new paradigms. It is a shifting sand, just like evolutionary science and so many other fields. Uh, it is subject to bias and to, um, to inaccuracy and, and wrong interpretations. However, there are some things that have been found that are so profoundly interesting. Um, the historical books are confirmed by the world around us. And let me give you one of the simplest ways. Jerusalem, Babylon, the Assyrians, the Hittites, the Moabites. I could go through all the names of the places and the tribes of, Israel, of the Old Testament um, and the nations, and you will find throughout secular history and archaeological uh, discovery, you will find these names. And you can still go to Jerusalem. You can still go to Syria. Uh, you, you know, you can still go to Ma Damascus. These are, the, the scriptures are rooted in this real world, and these things happen on this earth in, in real places. And this is worth noting. Uh, the Bible is a historical book and it helps us understand the history of the world that we live in. It's not a fairy tale. It is absolute truth. Uh, kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. And I could go on and on about uh, the history of the world. It is indisputed in, in, in any historian understands that these are historical references to real people. I'm going to go on a little bit more about this. Israel's old history, if you look at the history of archaeology in the Promised Land, you know, a few years ago, a seal was found with Hezekiah's name in it in, in Jerusalem. And, and the name of the Davidic kingdom is found now all over inscriptions in Jordan and Israel and Lebanon. Um, the, the names and the places and the people's names, individuals' names, are recorded in the history of the world. The interactions of Babylon and the Moabites, for example, the Misha stele, is, are, are written in the annals of the history of the kingdom surrounding. Uh, they wrote their own histories and they, um, 
bore witness to the existence of these kings and places. David, Hezekiah, the Moabites, the Hittites, Jericho, Jerusalem, Babylon, Syria, Solomon. All of these are attested to in the Scriptures and in world history more broadly. In other words, if you take a library of, of Babylon or the library of Alexandria, which was destroyed largely, if you take these and you were to read, you would find all these places and people and names. Um, there's some fascinating uh, finds that uh, Akkadian cuneiform tablets record, for example, generations of Jewish captives in Babylon. Um, the the uh, exile, including names of kings, and the diet, for example, of Jeconiah, um, the rations given to the royal family, the, the, the daily rations were found in on uh, cuneiform tablets outside of Babylon. Uh, the, the precise details of names and places uh, still are testament, are scattered across the Middle East, testament to the history of the Scriptures. I'll give you an example. Um, one tablet uh, found reads to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, uh, two and a half silos of oil to the five sons of the king of Judah. These are the rations in Babylon. This is the Babylonian kingdom records. Um, uh, a, a seal that may have belonged to Jehoiakim's son, Padiah, First Chronicles 3, 17, 18, reads belonging to Padiah, the king's son. Uh, the Jehoiakim ration tablets, as they have come to be known, are filled with this kind of interesting history. Now, we don't need those things. We don't need them at all. We have the Holy Spirit speaking through the Scriptures. However, I'm trying to impress upon you the nature of of the historical record of the Scriptures. Um, it has often been derided by scholarship, but again and again has been um, shown to be true. Real places, real people, real history against the modern. I think there's a little note here that I would like to sound about the historicity of Christianity. Uh, when liberalism swept through, modernism and then liberalism swept through the church, eight, really the mid-1800s in powerful force, and then running all the way into the great controversy in America from about 1900 to 1930, that controversy called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. This principal figure was a man named J. Gresham Machen. He was kicked out of the Presbyterian Church USA essentially for insisting at the heart of the thing was for insisting that the Bible is history and that Christianity is not simply a set of precepts, but it is the recounting of God's own works in history, supremely in Jesus Christ. While liberalism was trying to say that Christianity was just a way of life. Let me read a little bit from Machen. The problem of the origin of Christianity is what he's writing about. And he's writing about the New Testament, but it applies to the Old. That problem is an important historical problem and a practical problem. It's a historical problem not only because of the large place which Christianity has occupied in the world, because of certain unique features which even the most unsympathetic and superficial examination must detect in the beginnings of the Christian movement. The problem of the origin of Christianity is also an important practical problem. Rightly or wrongly, Christian experience has been ordinarily connected with one particular view of the origin of the Christian movement. Wherever the origins of biblical Christianity have been denied or abandoned, 
Christianity has ceased to exist. And when Machen talking about origins, he's talking about if the history is denied, the religion called Christianity will immediately cease to exist. It'll have some trappings for a while, but it'll disappear. We keep reading. The dependence of Christianity is such, it is upon a particular conception of its origin in history and supremely its founder, Jesus Christ. This is the present object of vigorous attack. There are many who maintain that Christianity is the same no matter what its origin was. The problem of origin should be kept directly separate from the present religious interests of the church. This indifference depends on a particular conception of Christianity. It depends on the conception which makes Christianity simply a way of life. That is wide, that's a widespread idea, but not universal. Machen writes, there's still hosts of earnest Christians who regard Christianity not simply as a manner of life, but a manner of life founded upon a message and a message with regard to the founder of the Christian movement, Jesus Christ, who lived in history. For such persons, the question of the origin of Christianity is actually the question of the truth of Christianity. And that question to them is the most important practical question of their lives. Machen is warning against a divorce between history and truth and especially chiefly the truth as it is in Jesus. The most important practical question for the modern church is how in history Christianity came into being. So that's just a, that's an aside there on history. Um, a few things on a brief chronology of the scriptures. Let me go to the back of your handout here. Um, uh, just I want to emphasize history. Now, uh, I have a... I know that I'm going to get in trouble with people who... Uh, should have but do not yet own reading glasses. Um, but hopefully there's only a few of you there. I actually am quickly moving into this category, I'm noticing, because uh, I, I have real trouble figuring out. Uh, I'm, I'm having to hold things farther away suddenly. I haven't been to the eye doctor. but Okay, this, this is a timeline from creation to the present. So I want to give you a scale. And then you see that little band, that dark band that says the historical books on that timeline? That would be the period in history that we're going to study. And I want you to get just a sense, not only of the structure of the Bible, but another thing that's very good is to get the timeline of the Scriptures. Anyone heard of Archbishop Usher? James Usher, primate of all England? The primate of the Church of England? He was uh, in the Puritan period, and he did a famous work of trying to unpack the history of the Scriptures with dates. I'm roughly using Usher here. It's hard to know from the Genesis genealogies, very hard to know whether or not he is um, not minus a thousand years, but you could add some time to Usher's genealogy. I'm a unashamed young earth creationist, world maybe between six and eight thousand years old, um, we can talk about that another time if you have questions. Uh, I believe the scriptures are history from Genesis 1.1. It's all history, divine history. So if you see creation at 4,000 and you're going to argue with me, don't. Uh, I, I understand that 
Usher may not have it exactly right. I'm trying to give you a sense of the timeline and its rough dimensions. It's not going to be millions of years. It's not going to be hundreds of thousands of years. It's going to be roughly in this time frame. I want you to notice some things from creation to the flood. Look how long of a period that is in world history. That is the first 11 chapters of the Bible roughly. The Tower of Babel coming almost right after the flood. The first 11 chapters of your Bible. So again, the way you read the Bible, the first 11 chapters cover roughly 2,300 years of that 6,000 year timeline. Uh, So what happens as you move forward in the Scriptures, as you read on, the granularity of the history gets more and more detailed. So you've got these broad sweep, Genesis 1-11. to We start to slow down Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to Egypt. And then we start to narrow down and you get judges in succession and kings in succession. And then I want you to go all the way to the zero mark there and see where the Scriptures really slow down between the birth of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem roughly. And they see that line in the middle? That would be the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have... Uh, Four Gospels, the book of Acts, five historical books, and you have all the epistles and the book of Revelation, the whole of the New Testament. And it's like uh, you begin with this broad view in Genesis 1-11 to and you begin narrowing and narrowing and narrowing until you have the, the, the most granular and the most detailed revelation concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is the structure of the Scriptures to get a sense. So, if you're to, I wish I had all the books over this. The historical books, so you can see the creation, flood, call of Abram. Um, we have the conquest of the land where we start, and then we are going to end with the return from exile, roughly in history. The last prophet, Malachi, is about 400 years before Christ. The negative sign, I did this in Excel, so the negative sign is supposed to say B.C., but you get the idea. Um, we have before and after. Um, it, it, it helps, now when you read your Bible, for example, uh, Genesis roughly runs from creation to the Exodus. That's one book of your Bible is close to 50% of the timeline of human history. Again, just so you think about the way the Scriptures are put together. It helps you read. Um, by the way, Usher... Um, the historian, English historian Bede, uh, Johannes Kepler, famous man, Isaac Newton, they all actually agreed roughly with, uh, with Usher. People won't tell you that Sir Isaac Newton, the brilliant mathematician and scientist, also believed that the world was roughly, uh, the origin of creation was roughly 4,000 years before Christ. This would be the common belief rooted in one truth, the Bible is God's history. And we're going to submit ourselves to that history. And that was universally uh, 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 thought. So, um, Any questions on that timeline? I'm trying to, again, structure and timeline is really what I want you to get, you, get in your mind. But see, the historical books is that section that we'll be studying. Uh, Shelley. Where do you think Job is? Job. So, uh, it, it's hard to know. It, it, he may be... Um, some have surmised that from Chronicles, his description in Chronicle genealogies, 
that he's a grandson of Esau. That he's a, he seems to be in the period of the patriarchs. Um, but uh, I think Jobab is how he's listed. It may be the same person. Most people would put him in the period of the patriarchs. So uh, somewhere around the call of Abraham. So actually, in terms of history, uh, it's a wisdom book, but it's also history. Uh, it's quite early. It's quite early. Now, it's only the life of one person. So Ruth would be a similar thing. Ruth would be a point on this timeline. And Job would be a point on this timeline. Daniel would be a very short period. It's the life of Daniel, a short period on the timeline. Um, some of those books will give you a burst of detail, and others, Genesis is giving you just a massive sweep. Uh, we don't have time to get into the last section. I did not follow Jim's advice and go quickly. I thought there's always another week. That's what I thought. Yes. Probably both of them are okay. Uh, I hope this is helpful to you. Um, the great emphasis here is on the Bible as history and that God is revealing his own mighty works and recording them by the power of the Spirit and that what we believe is rooted in what God has done. And this is, uh, to use Machen's ideas, this is supernatural religion, or that's Warfield's great phrase, supernaturalism. And Machen's great idea, this is early 1900, defending against modernism, is uh, without this connection to real history, there is no real Christianity. The whole thing is gone. We do not have uh, a religion of simple sentiment, but we stand back and we praise God for his mighty works. If I ever circle back to Psalm 78... That we may set our hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and then we learn negatively, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation that did not set its heart aright, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And that we learn uh, from what God has done, we learn from what sinners have done, what not to do, and supremely we learn history through the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going we're gonna to stop there. And uh, I know it was a pretty simple introduction, but hopefully it gets us oriented on the nature of your Bible. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we think of you, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that you did so in the beginning. And then our minds run to the very end of history as we know it, when you, Lord Jesus, will come again on the clouds from glory and the heavenly Jerusalem, your holy city will descend. And the great reunion of all things that was shattered first in the garden by our sin will be accomplished by Jesus Christ, the God-man who came at the center of history and who lives and reigns now and who is the, the answer and the fulfillment of all that was hoped for in the days of the prophets and the fathers. And who has been shown to us in the Gospels and by the Apostles and by your Holy Spirit in every place. And we pray, give us grace to receive your word as truth in all that it says. And to search and mind that truth for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.